Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you for joining us. I hope that you will join us every Sunday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We also encourage you to, uh, uh, to go to our guest website. We'll be giving that website to you in just a little bit, uh, and uh, we encourage you to uh, continue your evolutionary process. We also would like to let you know that if you'd like to support what we're doing, uh, you enjoy the programs, you like the guests we're having and the conversation, and you'd like to be a part of it financially, we have PayPal and Patreon accounts to help out uh, so that you can uh, keep uh, your finances secure as well as ours. So uh, please go to PayPal or Patreon on the homepage or the missions page of richarddugan.com so that you can, uh, again, uh, support us financially. And we thank you, thank you, thank you for your support uh, as we thank those who will support us here on the program. Today's program, I think you're going to truly enjoy. It's going to be uh, with our special guest here on the program, Douglas Vermeer, and he is the producer of uh, a film entitled uh, How Thoughts Become Things. HowThoughtsBecomeThings.com is the website. It's available right now at that website. You can go and watch it. We encourage you to do so. I've seen it. It's wonderful. Bob Proctor is one of the participants of this film, along with uh, Joe Vitale and uh, many, many other folks that you probably know the names of. And so please uh, check out uh, the website. And we thank you so much for joining us here on the program, Douglas Vermeeren. Would like to ask you to start off with about some of the basic aspects of how we turn thoughts into things. And again, the title of the book is How Thoughts Become Things. We generally don't create much unless there's an emotional attachment. You know, we talked a little bit about, you know, the secret and these kinds of things. And people generally say that the missing ingredient is that they didn't teach enough about action, right? Taking action. But the truth is, is that's not the next step. When we have a thought, the next step is to have feelings about it. We never take action about things we couldn't care less about. We never take action about things that we don't believe are possible. But if you look at the most dynamic actions that people take, especially now if we can even look at what's going on in parts of the world right now about what's happening with George Floyd's protest and these things, is yeah. pe people are getting involved in that because they're emotionally connected to it, right? If they couldn't care less, they wouldn't be out there protesting. They wouldn't, it wouldn't be in the news. It, people wouldn't be you know, responding to it the way they do. So emotion is such a huge player in this. But I still believe that even with emotion, the emotion of reacting is for most people much more, uh, how should we say, uh, powerful, much more gripping, much more, you know, it, it, it's there more because of response rather than a deliberate proactive approach. There are very few people who are proactively deciding what they want out of life, right? Mm. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I really do. It, it, it's, it's interesting too, though, how the the consciousness has shifted it's over the period of the first seven or eight days very aggressive very angry mm -hmm. very frustrated but as the eighth day rolled into the ninth day you started to see some signs of cohesion yeah. of understanding uh, one of the things that i've always thought of when it came to for example military action or, or, I mean, even in our own country, and this is going back years when you have National Guard troops. Uh, I know Kent State was considered an accident, but mm -hmm. there have been other situations where you have 
fellow Americans, not just fellow human beings, yeah. but fellow Americans who are told, you must go over there and you must do this, that, and the other thing. And, and the people, and I remember hearing about similar situations in Russia uh, over the last decade or so, and the women would go up to the soldiers who might've been fathers or sons and say, what are you doing? Yeah. We, we are you, you are us. You know, how can you do this to your, your, your own countrymen and women? And, and, and that's what I started seeing here was the realization on the part of the enforcement groups yeah. that, okay, I can't leave my post. Because one gal, I remember seeing this one piece where this one guy was trying to get these guys in the National Guard to come with them and march with them. And they wouldn't do it because they weren't going to leave their post. But what they did do was they took a knee. In, and sh to show their solidarity and understanding, even though they had orders, that didn't mean that they couldn't show them. And yeah. I, I, it seems to me like things are unfolding a little differently than, say, the powers that be uh, maybe had predicted or had wanted, uh, that we're all citizens of this, of this particular country, if that's what we want to talk about. But we're all citizens of the planet. And, and so I'm wondering, after somebody sees the movie, uh, How Thoughts Become Things, uh, what is your thought <laughs> in terms of what you would like them to come away with in terms of their role as a citizen of the earth, a citizen of the universe, mm -hmm. let alone on those other lower levels uh, of uh, the country and the state and so on and so forth? Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts in that regard? Well, I, I think, first of all, the one thing that I hope people come away with is an awareness of how much they can affect their own individual circumstances and situation. That the programming that they've been kind of raised in and given up until now does not define who they are as individuals. I think the first step to any kind of change is awareness. And then if we're looking at a global scale, I think sometimes we look too grand. And we've got to understand, it's kind of like what Gandhi said, you know, you need to be the change that you want to see in the world. And so that as individuals, as we begin to recognize that we have power over our personal circumstances and the ability to change individual circumstances, that as we change as individuals, we first change ourselves, then what do they say, our families, then our communities, from communities, then to our cities and, and so forth. Uh, I think it, it needs to really how should we say, my goal is, is to get to what Malcolm Gladwell would call tipping point, right? Where we have enough people that start dialing into this idea that they've got power, that suddenly they begin to have power as a group. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because, you know, some people think, I think incorrectly that no matter what I do, no matter what I think, I can't really change much. And that's a common thing that we hear. Well, why bother trying, you know? Uh, what do they say? No matter who you vote for, the government gets in. You've probably heard that saying before, you know, no matter who mm -hmm. you vote for, government gets in. But that's kind of a cop out. And that's kind of an excuse, in my opinion, that if people will uh, really recognize that they do have the power to change their immediate circumstances, that some big things can happen. And, and I've seen it happen in my life. Like I came from a background where, you know, my father worked in construction, my mom babysat kids in the home, we were broke, right? I wore hand-me-downs even into high school. And it was very easy for me to believe that, I was going to be just like my dad working in the trades and, you know, good luck on changing that, right? That's who our family was, so to speak. But as I went out and had a chance to start meeting with 
you know, some of the world's top achievers that I've interviewed and people that I, you know, could learn from, I recognize that I have a lot more power to control my future than I actually believed possible. And as I began to, to seize that power that I, I recognized that I was not, you know, it, it, it's not like, uh, you know, the dark ages where people are sort of stuck as either landowners or peasants or farmers, right? We can, we can, and I use this word carefully, but we can graduate from whatever station we're, we're beginning in to really whatever station of life that we want to be in. Now, keeping in mind that there are limitations, I'm never going to be, for example, a, a football running back or play in the NBA, you know, I'm five, six, it's not going to get me there. But there are things that I can do. So while there are limitations, there are also exceptions and there are opportunities. And who knows, maybe even at five, six, if it had been my dream, I could have played in the NBA. There are people that have done that. Yeah. But for me, it wasn't like, again, coming back to emotion, it wasn't something that got me excited enough to really put the effort in to make the change to do the right. work, right? Right, yeah. But, the, but what, what is it one of my friends says, and I love this idea, he says, everyone is wealthy, our wealth just appears in the form that we value most, right? And so wow. if you want to be, I don't know, again, whatever it is, you pick a thing, right? The thing that you want to do, the thing that you want to create, the thing that you want to be or, or have or however you want it to experience, if you love it enough, if you want it enough, if you value it enough, you'll sacrifice for it. And sacrifice is one of the keys to change. That idea that you can have your cake and eat it too, it's not true. I can't be in two places at once, generally speaking, right? Mm -hmm. And if I choose to develop my efforts at becoming, for example, the greatest guitar player of all time, at the same token, I'm not going to be able to be the greatest painter of all time because both of them will require a certain amount of my attention and effort. I have to make a choice. And maybe what it is is I want to do both moderately well, but... I can't do one to the extreme of being the absolute best that I could be if I'm, if I'm not willing to sacrifice for it. And I think that's also something that I've noticed with people is many people are prepared to play in many, many things at a mediocre point of view. And that creates a jack of all trades, master of none. And it's almost like, if you think about why are most people not highly successful, it's because in life truly, it's like we have a room full of plants and you've only got one glass of water, but we're trying to water everything. And so not everything will flourish and live because we're just trying to water too many plants. However, if we pick one or two or three things that we really want to get focused on, really get committed to, really get, you know, uh, willing to sacrifice for, those things will flourish and they'll grow. And they'll be very, uh, how should we say, we will rise to an expert level at those things. But we've got to be selective. And you know what? It's, it's okay to also not be an expert in everything. You know, it's okay to actually be diverse too, if that's what you you really want to do in life. The, the, the cool thing about this whole idea of thoughts becoming things is that there is actually no wrong answer. But the things that you think about most, the things that you're emotionally invested in most, and the things that you're willing to make those sacrifices for, those are the things that are going to appear. And that, that's the if, essence of it. If you've just joined us, my guest is Douglas Vermeer, and he is the uh, producer, if you will, of the uh, film uh, that uh, is available. Uh, it's called How Thoughts Become Things. And we're talking about that concept uh, that is uh, dovetailing off of a lot of other films that have been out over the last few decades. Uh, I, re I still remember when um, uh, What the Bleep, oh, when yes. that first came out. And then of course there was, a there was a sequel to that. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of the same folks that have participated in uh, how Thoughts Become Things uh, participated in it. Uh, Bob Proctor, I believe, was in those mm -hmm. as well. 
and I've just found it interesting as, as I have gone through my life and the experiences that I have had, uh, I remember my mother asking me uh, not long ago uh, if I had ever had any spiritual or supernatural experiences. Hmm. And I, I told her, I said, you know, I don't know. Uh, because I, I don't look at things from the standpoint of, is this a natural phenomenon versus a paranormal, if you will, mm. uh, or spiritual, uh, mystical experience? To me, it's all part of the same. I, I for example, when I think about uh, the miracles that Jesus did, according to the, uh, the New Testament, um, to him, it was no big deal. It's just what he, it was the same to him as breathing the air. He knew no difference in that regard. Uh, but there's a interesting part of that I wanted to dovetail into if I could. His disciples were marveling at, at these miracles he was performing and asked him, hey, uh, 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 Rabbi, could you, uh, that's some crazy stuff you're doing. Could, could you teach us to do that? And he basically, I paraphrase, says this stuff, Sure, I'll teach you how to do this, but here's the deal. You think this is something? You guys are going to do greater works than these. And I believe, Douglas, that the greater work is the transformation of our lives. Isn't that really what we're talking about here through this process and through this film, How Thoughts Become Things, is the process of transforming our lives from, using the word, mundane to the, shall we say, the extraordinary. I think so. And, you know, the thought that came to my mind as you're talking about this is, and, and I can't, of course, remember the quote, and I probably won't get it right either, but something to the effect of, great is not the man who wins a war, great is the man who conquers self. And I thought that that was an interesting way to look at it. And, you know, if you're looking at this example of Jesus, you know, I, I believe that everything that he did, he did according to law. It's just a law that we don't understand, right? And, and I think that this idea of, um, you know, when he was talking to them about greater things that they will do, I think one of the greatest things that they did and probably the most difficult thing that those people experienced, the disciples, was a conversion, right? So a change, a change of heart. And when we're talking about the film, How Thoughts Become Things, it's interesting, and I've had this conversation with a few people, you've got four words here, How Thoughts Become Things. And two of these words everybody focuses on, and that's thoughts and things. They worry, I'm having negative thoughts, I'm having fear, I'm having doubt, I'm having challenges, I'm having, and they really think that the goal is just to always think positive. And a lot of these movies and a lot of the gurus and a lot of the seminars are all about think positive, you can do it, you can do it. But the truth is that's actually impossible for us, we're humans. And the way that thoughts arrive is every time there's a powerful thought, thoughts arrive in pairs. You'll always get the negative thought right behind it to tell you whether you can or not, right? It'll whisper in your ear, you're not good enough, you can't do it, this is what you don't know, you've never done it, blah, blah, blah. And in the end, we get to choose which of these two thoughts we'll believe. Sometimes we believe that we can, sometimes we believe that we can't, right? So that's thoughts. The other word is things, and we talked about this, is that things always exist already in some form or another. Even the things that haven't been invented, the problems that we are going to eventually use to discover those things already exist. So the problem itself or, or the thing itself already exists in some capacity. But the two words that no one really talks about much is that word how and the word become. 
And this idea of how really has a lot to do with how do we then select which thoughts are going to serve us best, empower us? How are we going to solidify those thoughts, whether again, it's through emotion or a commitment or based on our values or our beliefs? How are we going to become aware of what we're thinking? How are we going to sort through that mess of the 60, 70,000 thoughts a day that come to us? That's a big question. But the other one is also important. And I think it's the most important word. Funny enough, I've written it or, you know, this logo, it's got it the smallest. <laughs> Maybe mm -hmm. that's a clue because we don't see it. We overlook it. And Jim Rohn once said, and he's a great motivational speaker of all time, legend. If, if people don't know his name, look him up. Jim Rohn, R-O-H-N. He said once that if someone becomes uh, or wins the lottery, they need to become a millionaire very quickly if they're going to keep it. And I think that this is interesting, that word become, this really talks about the changes that we need to make, the change that we need to, to do internally. And I think that that's kind of what Jesus was talking about. The greatest miracle that you'll ever experience is personal change, where you actually are able to escape your programming, escape your existing beliefs, and escape kind of who you thought you were to become the fullest potential of who you really are. You know, it's interesting. I've got a, another friend of mine. Um, you know, we talked about the, the top achievers that I've interviewed. I still hang out and connect with many of them. They're still friends and mentors. And there's one friend that I meet uh, pretty much for lunch once a week, at least every Friday anyways. And he's worth about $800 million. Uh, he's just an incredible man. He's, he's almost, uh, I think he's just shy of his 75th birthday, um, but just really full of wisdom. And he and I were talking about this idea of belief before, the word belief even. And he says, whenever you believe something, you're subscribing to a lie. And I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, when you believe something to be true, you cut off all other possibilities. You endorse that idea only. It is your belief. And so you're subscribed to a lie. And if you think about all the ways that humankind has ever done things in the world, there's always more than, let's quote it this way, more than one way to skin a cat. There always is more mm -hmm. than one way to do something. But the minute we say, nope, that's it. There's only one way. We've now put ourselves in a limiting position. And so this idea of become, we need to be open to change however it's going to arrive. And it never arrives the way we think it will. And it never arrives our way, right? So if yeah. we say, this is the way that success has to happen for me. This is the way that it's going to go. And we follow that route because of our beliefs. Maybe our parents said, listen, you want to become wealthy. You've got to go to school. You've got to become a doctor, lawyer, or whatever it is. And that's their idea of how you're going to get there. And you, maybe you believe that. Well, now you're believing a lie. The truth of the matter is, is there's a million ways to make a million dollars if that's what your goal is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and is any one of them right? Maybe. Is any one of them wrong? Maybe not. Right? Here's the deal. You got to find what's right for you and what's authentic to you. And the only, only way you're really going to discover that is through this process of becoming once you become aware of what's serving you and what's not. I'll be honest with you. For me, one of my biggest challenges was school. As a kid growing up, I had terrible marks. I, I don't know if I was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. I always joke I've got ADD, HD, which is ADD in high definition, right? But <laughs> I, just, I just couldn't concentrate. School was boring to me. I didn't see the purpose. I didn't see the point. And when people would ask me questions about geography and all this, I was like, that's never going to happen in real life. I've never had somebody outside a classroom ask me what the capital of, say, uh, Hawaii is or the capital of... Arizona or Utah or whatever. Nobody asked those questions in real life. So I didn't, I didn't see what the purpose was, right? Like I've never had somebody in a shopping mall come up to me when I want to buy something at the store and say, can you tell me who the, the 25th president of the United States was? Like it's irrelevant to my life. 
So for me, I shut off from that capacity. I didn't believe that the education was important. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, I, I don't want to discount it too much because I don't want kids who are in school to hear this and say, well, Doug Vermeer and say, you don't need to go to school because it's, it's <laughs> time. that's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, it's not exactly what I'm saying anyways. But no. what I'm saying is back to this idea of creating success out of life. Um, we've got to be careful that we don't endorse too many of the ideas that have been thrust upon us from programming right? We need to understand that there are multiple ways to do it. I think school is good, but the thing that I got out of school, to be honest with you, again, not the learning, but the social connections, to learn how to connect and work well with other people. So there was value for me there, but a different kind of value than maybe what other people get, yeah. right? Well, uh, I, my next question uh, should, should uh, be rather perplexing to you, and that is, <laughs> can you... Can you tell us what the, the square root of the hypotenuse is? Oh, sure. I've got the, I've got the internet. I've got Google now. How fast do you want it? <laughs> you know, see, that's the other thing, too. Is, 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 I, I kind of love this. Like, I've had people tell me, like, I've done pretty good financially. Right now, I do about eight figures a year in passive income, meaning I don't have a job, right? Because I've learned that the way to get things done is never to ask, how can I and what can I do? How can I do this? Blah, blah, blah. No, the better question is, who can do this for me, mm-hmm. right? Who has these systems? Who knows how to do this? And I hire those people. Those are the people that make me money. And so, you know, if, if I'm looking at what's the hypotenuse of whatever it is that we want to figure out, <laughs> right? My first question isn't, I don't need to know that clatter in my brain. I don't need to figure that out. That's really honestly the first thought that came to my mind. What a useless question. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love it, Richard. That's a great, it's a great example, but it's a dumb question for a guy like me because I just yeah. don't so what I will do, like I said, is I'm just going to either hop onto Google and if I can't find it there, I'm just going to quickly get my phone and I'm going to text a guy that works for me that is crazy smart. And I'm going to say, you know, Jay, what is the answer to that? And I need it right away. He's going to yeah. text me back in two minutes. I'll give you your answer and we're good to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Why do I need that? Right. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because my, uh, the, the book that I have written, it's called choices, five steps mm. to life. And uh, it came out of my wife's uh, uh, 2001 bout with uh, a rare form of cancer, uh, which she has survived from now to this day and doing quite well. Thank you very much. But I I remembered something from some of the uh, interviews that I had done over the many years, even up to that point, uh, that when somebody's going through a really hard time, uh, and they're struggling and, and so forth. Uh, if you can get them to refocus their attention on something that will really help them down the road, put it down on a piece of paper, make a bunch of copies and just put it all over the place, on the mirrors, mm-hmm. in the cabinets, in the refrigerator, in the underwear drawer, uh, in the washing machine, uh, on and on and on, everywhere that you think they will go. And so that's what I did with these five steps. Well, one of them has to do, one of the steps has to do with matching your choice with your personal input Mm -hmm. and even with the people you surround yourself with. Now, my my wife's ex-husband was still around at that time. And every time he would come into the hospital room after her surgery, um, he just was very negative. You know, he was Mm -hmm. looking up the statistics and all this kind of stuff. And and now I, I had to honor her and say, look, you know, I, I, I'm not going to tell you that he can't come here and visit you. 
but you really need to tell him to knock it off with the negative talk because that's not helping you. Yeah. And eventually he did. Uh, and actually, he's actually become a good friend of both of us, which was really quite phenomenal uh, and wonderful, actually. But it's, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, you talk about when you believe something, it's a lie. Well, they're those wise sayings or I don't know. I can't remember what they're actually called. But, you know, the one about the sticks and stones will break your bones, but words sure. will never hurt you. That's a lie. Yeah. And the other one is you can't change other people. I found out that's a lie. You can, but it's not on a conscious level. When you change yourself, when you start working on the inside of you and you start transforming your life, you're either going to draw people to you or, you, or people are going to be repelled by you. If you follow what I'm saying, it's a, yeah, talk about the law of attraction here. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, and so I have, I have encouraged my listeners and other people that I talk with uh, throughout the days and weeks, um, you know, if you're working on yourself and all of a sudden one of your friends drops away, uh, be thankful that they were in your life when they were and that they were there for you for, for whatever reason and understand that their presence really doesn't serve you anymore. doesn't yeah. mean that you have to cut ties. We're not talking about, you know, deleting well, well, them from well, your Well, this context. is something that, that I, I tried to talk a little bit about in the movie, but we didn't have the time. Right. I think a lot of the gurus have it wrong where they're telling you to cut off all the toxic people in your life. Truthfully, right. if someone's abusive, I'm going to say get rid of them. That's true, yeah. abuse. But abuse is different than toxic. And I think most people are very quick. They don't agree with somebody or somebody makes them feel a little bit bad. They cut them off and they call it toxic. That's not really a fair way. And when I went out and I interviewed 400 of the world's top achievers, I'm talking some of the biggest business leaders of all time. They do not cut off toxic people and they also don't run from problems, right? They face problems and they solve them. And so here's the deal is if you want to have more right? You need to expand who you are before you can expand what you have, which means mm -hmm. that you need to expand your ability to deal with people that don't always see the way that you do. And also it's important to notice that there's two different kinds of what we call toxic people. There's complainers, people like maybe that this ex here who just came in and yeah, would had something negative to say, but you, you did the right thing. You didn't endorse it. You didn't subscribe to it. You didn't say, I'm going to buy into this idea and you don't have to take that opinion as your own. But there's mm -hmm. another kind of toxic person that I think we need to be careful to listen to a little more carefully, and that's a critic. And mm. sometimes a critic will say things to us that hurts. Like, for example, when I was a teenager, going again back to high school, we talk a lot about high school today. When I was a, a teenager, I had some ideas about life that I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, you got to pull up your socks. You got to stop hanging out with those people. You got to do some things differently. And this is the way that it is. And they were very critical to me at the time. I was mad. I used a different word. I can, I don't know, pissed off, right? I was really mad. Um, but what I realized looking back is that this person was one, speaking the truth, and two, he cared about me. The problem was, is he just wasn't a good communicator. And so, you know, a person may speak truth, but they may not share it in a way that you feel good about it. And you may label them as toxic, but that's your ego talking, right? And if, if you really look at people who are successful in life, there's a difference between tenacity and stupidity. Stupidity is a guy who's in a room trying to get to the other room and he's banging his head against the wall trying to get to the next room, but he keeps banging it in the same spot. And no matter if somebody will tell him, hey, idiot, stop. And he's like, go mind your own damn business. And he'll keep banging his head in the wall in the same spot, right? Mm -hmm. But a smart person, someone that's tenacious, they'll bang their head on the wall. Someone will come and say, there's a better way. So he'll try a new spot on the wall and it may not work either. And then he'll try another spot and he'll keep trying. 
And maybe then he'll turn to this person that was very critical and just say, teach me, right? And then he finds the door or the window. So the difference between tenacity and stupidity is, are we teachable? And many people are not. And so they would rather hang on to ego, bang their head on the wall, do it their way. And anybody that comes and disagrees with them or tries to show them, again, maybe they're not doing it the best way. Maybe they're not a good communicator as they're trying to teach. But we label them as toxic and we discard them and we send them all away. Now, I can figure this out on my own. I don't need toxic people. You don't like the way I'm doing things? Get out of my life, right? And that's the wrong answer. It's a very immature, selfish perspective. You'll never, ever grow in strength. And the one thing I noticed also about my time with the top achievers is that they're very curious people. It's almost like they're in a constant mode of market research about who they are right? Yeah. And so they're always asking, even if it's painful to hear, they want to know the truth. If they're not doing something that's correct or something they could do better or something that they aren't aware of, they want to know about it. And they're willing to, how should we say, take a punch for the team just to get up to, to the levels of where they really want to be in real life, right? It's, it's an extraordinary life that we live. And the opportunities abound when COVID-19 struck in primarily January here in the States. Um, I knew what was coming. I knew what was going to happen. Not because of the fact that I was listening to the experts on TV. No, Mm. I had an awareness. I had an understanding uh, that we didn't know anything about this virus. Uh, I was ashamed of the fact that they said we're going to war. It's like, Mm. come on, really? You mean to tell me we can't go one year, one month, one day without having an enemy? And besides, the first, one of the thoughts that came to my mind, no disrespect to anybody who has contracted it or has passed from it, but, you know, where's the prime directive when you need it? How do we know that we couldn't maybe communicate with this? this? How do we know it's not an alien life form, you know, and, and it's intelligent and it's conscious and it's well, sentient. Again, it comes from yeah. that idea that uh, our ego thinks we have all the answers already. Yeah, exactly. Right? But I thought, first thing I thought of was, oh my God, what? incredible opportunities lie ahead and i don't even know what they are all i know is there are going to be some incredible opportunities and i still feel that way and i stay away from the news and i stay away from the complainers and the whiners who on the one hand are saying that oh this is a farce this was fake uh this was a conspiracy this was this this was that it was the other And then on the other side, those people who are saying, oh, my God, we're doomed and we're all going to die kind of thing. The truth is, is we are all going to die. That is absolutely true. That's just a matter of the clock. So, well, my father, my father said, get too excited about this. That's right. My father once said, and I quote him often, eat, drink and be merry in moderation because nobody gets out of this world alive. Well, I I like it uh, this way. This is the way I think about it. Life is like a bad, scary movie, right? Nobody's getting out alive. That's it, right? <laughs> like a bad, scary movie, right? But the truth is, is, is also, you know, I look at it that we all got to have fun, right? We got to enjoy yeah. what we do. We got to leave a legacy that we can be proud of. The truth is, is, you know, in 500 years, nobody's going to remember me, right? Nobody's going to care. But yeah. I can create some programming right now around those that I love that they can pass on to those that I haven't met that I'll love and so on and so forth. So we do our best to really kind of build, if you will, a position of power so that those that we leave behind can move better than we did. Right. Yeah, absolutely. If you've just joined us, we're talking with uh, Douglas Vermeeren and he is the 
uh, producer of the film. And uh, first of all, when and where will it be made available, Douglas? It is available right now online. You can go to www.howthoughtsbecomethings.com. You can see it right now. And uh, for those that come and see it right away, actually, you'll also get like a free workbook and there's some audios that we give you and a variety of other tools that can supplement your journey to learning this even beyond the movie. Got more questions for you as we take our quick break here. I'm Richard Dugan. This is Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And uh, we ask you to stay tuned. Three, two, one. Welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. As I have shared with you many, many times, we are here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. And we do stream live at those times with the podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and a bunch of other places as well. We are talking with Doug Vermeer and the producer of uh, How Thing Thoughts, How Thoughts Become Things. Uh, Doug, where did the idea for this, uh, what was the germinating factor to then create this film and incorporate these incredible people of uh, thought into this, this uh, wonderful piece? Yeah, that, that's a, a really good question. And the more that I think about what was sort of the defining beginning of this, uh, as I mentioned, as a young man, I was broke. I came from a family that was stuck in the rat race and was very good at the poverty pattern. In other words, work hard, work overtime if you need more money, work, 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 work. And so um, when I started interviewing the 400 of the world's top achievers and some of these millionaires and billionaires and business leaders and people that had really achieved a high level of thinking in this regards, I noticed my thinking began to shift. And I was like, what's going on here? I'm not even thinking like the people that I was raised with anymore. I'm not thinking about my friends that I was around anymore. There's some things happening up here. And so that was kind of the genesis of it. And then a few years later, a friend of mine said to me this idea around thoughts become things. And he was all dramatic when he said it too, right? Like thoughts become, and I'm like, but how, right? <laughs> and he was like, well, it doesn't matter. That doesn't happen. I'm like, no, it does matter. It actually does. I want to know how. And so I began to investigate that and seek that out. And uh, by that time, I'd already had a couple of my movies were already out. So I knew many of the thought leaders who you'd seen in some of the bigger movies, some of them had been in mine. And so I just started asking them these questions. And, you know, I felt like there really needed to be a movie to answer this, to give people the actual practical application, the real world steps of how thoughts become things, but also how the thoughts that we already have, how did they arrive, right? Like, so how do we get in the soup? And then how do we get out of the soup to create what we really want? And so I think that's, that's more or less the genesis of it, right? What was the genesis of your getting involved with this whole concept? Was there a catalytic moment in your life where you said, uh, I'm out of this rat race. I'm not going to play this game. Uh, I am going to find a better way for me. Well, you know, that's an interesting question, because I think if I, if I were to really look at a defining moment, so like I said, I went out as a 19-year-old, as a and I started interviewing some of the world's top achievers, people that, again, were some of the biggest leaders in the world in business, and I ran into this one guy who basically, he said, so what are you going to do with all this stuff, this info, this information, now that you got it, what are you going to do? And I actually didn't have an answer. I was just enjoying the interview so much, I had no idea what I was going to do. He says, well, here's what you're going to do. Uh, why don't you make your first investment? Put your money where your mouth is. And I was like, yeah, I don't have a lot of money. And he's like, well, you're going to have to come up with it. And in my bank account at the time, I think I had maybe $17. And 
And this investment that he presented me with was $1,250. I'll never forget. That's what it was. And he said, well, you figure out a way that you're going to do it. And it scared the crap out of me. And so I really took that challenge as how, how would I do it? Like, how will I come up with it? All these top achievers have done it. How am I going to do it? And so I really pushed it. I did everything I could. I scrounged. I sold some stuff that I had. I, you know, downsized a few things. I, you know, I, I even funny enough, um, I skipped some of my groceries and I made do with what I already had and, you know, all this kind of stuff. I had a little bit of extra money coming in from family while I was at school. And so I uh, moved that somewhere and it's kind of like, you know, you take your last $5 from your birthday card from your grandma. Like I was doing all that kind of stuff, right? Just to accumulate like everything that I could literally do to get to this 1250. And I got it and I put it together and um, you know, this gentleman helped me to make this first investment. And the interesting thing is, is as soon as I started seeing that every month it started giving me a check for $60, that was it. Just a check every month now for $60. I was like, I didn't have to work for that 60 bucks and it's coming every month. Show me how to do this again. Right. And so that was the real shift that, you know, some people may, may think uh, 60 bucks, that's not really a whole lot of money. But if you were walking down the street and you saw $60 on the ground, would you pick it up? And then if you walked through the same street a month later and there's another 60 bucks, would you come every month and just make sure you pick that up as it's there? Well, yeah. And as I realized that, you know, wealth and any other form of success is not really built in the way that we traditionally think. For example, most people think, Time equals money. You put in more time, you put in overtime, you get money. Sometimes people think education equals money, which is kind of a roundabout way of saying time because education is accumulated by the years that you put in school. And I, I found right away that that was an incorrect idea, that the truth is, is that money doesn't care what you know, and it also doesn't care how much time you put in. Money actually follows systems. So when you build the system in place, the money automatically flows. And so I now became how should we say, almost uber obsessed with looking for what are the systems then, not just for money, but everything. If I want more happiness in life, what's the system for that? If I want a good relationship, what's the system for that? If I want, uh, you fill in the blank, health, whatever it is that you want, uh, everything has a system that's built around it or maybe a better way to express it. Um, just like we talked about the miracles of Jesus, what are the laws that govern those things? Because most of the time people don't understand them. They've got the laws messed up. That's why they're not doing quote unquote miracles in certain areas of their life because they don't understand the laws. And the more you understand that law and the more that you apply it, the more becomes available to you. So that was kind of the changing point for me. I remember sharing with people, you talk about the laws and, um, this is kind of the analogy that I have used over the years in reference to what you're talking about here in terms of the laws. Let's just say for the sake of argument that we know that there are, there are 10,000 laws of the universe. Okay. But man in his ego has discovered 10 and thinks, ah, oh, we've got it now. Oh, we've got all the laws that there are. And then the next year comes along and we discover 11. Oh, well, now we've got it. Now we've got all the laws. And, and I just sit here and I marvel uh, at the, the and, and then now I'm going back to what you said, uh, the definition, uh, or I don't know if it's a definition of belief. Well, it's a lie. Because, and, and by the way, that spurred in my mind a conversation I had with my eldest sister, who was a member of a very rigid Christian sect. 
and we were conversing at Thanksgiving over uh, uh, one of the tables that was in the kitchen. I learned two things that day. Number one, you do not carry on this kind of a conversation in the kitchen at Thanksgiving time when mom is cooking because we got thrown out. Nice. Um, but my sister was challenging my salvation. And even at that time in my life, I, I considered myself a metaphysician. And she was questioning my beliefs. And I said, well, the problem is, is that my beliefs of yesterday are not my beliefs of today, are not my beliefs of tomorrow, because I'm still alive. I'm still experiencing. I still have questions. I, there are things I haven't done yet that I want to do. And so there's no way that my beliefs are going to stay static, to use a, I'll use a com computer term, sure. versus dynamic. And I remember Greg Braden sharing with us in a program when we interviewed him for his book called the healing power of belief. And mm -hmm. he said, there will come a day when we will no longer believe. We will know. We will just know. Now, that doesn't mean that we will know the truth. But for us as individuals, and this is where 2020, the year perfect vision comes in, Douglas. When we go within our own selves, when we spend time let's, in meditation, if you want, uh, listening to that still small voice, we will know. Yeah. But the one thing we have to remember, and I'd love for you to dive into this too, because I know a lot of people make this mistake. We don't have to justify our beliefs or our knowings to anyone. If that's what we believe or that's what we know, and I'm not talking here uh, you know, about believing that the earth is flat and those kinds of things. Although, I mean, you know, if you want to believe that, that's, that's your prerogative. Um, but you don't have to justify it to any other human being because it's yeah. between you and the force, your creator. That's for you inside yourself. Your thoughts? Well, let, let's look at it this way too. And I, I, I have to confess that I am a Christian, so I do believe that. But something that I think maybe, um, was maybe not understood by your sister. Let's look at some opposites here. So we talk about salvation but we also talk about damnation too. Mm -hmm. And I think that word damnation is a clue to understanding how this all works. What is damnation? What does it mean to be condemned? Well, we also use that word when we're building a dam for a river, meaning that the water can no longer flow, right? And so damnation is actually a person who is no longer interested or able, based on whatever they've chosen to think, believe, or do, they are unable to progress. So they have stopped progression. And salvation, in my opinion, is the ability to progress without limit. That's what salvation is. And so I think a lot of people have that as a misunderstanding. They think that, you know, you're going to confess Jesus and you're going to wind up in heaven and you believe and it's just going to be one party and that's what it's going to be. Well, I'll tell you right now, heaven is not a swamp, right? It's not going to be a place that sits there in a state of condemnation, meaning that it's got no progress, that we're stopped, the river doesn't flow. That's not heaven. That's not how he operates. That's not how the, you know, even the universe doesn't operate that way. It's always in a constant state of expansion and growth. Yeah. And to think, to think that we are striving to wind up in a station where we can, you know, even entering into his rest, that doesn't mean that we rest and we stop. Okay, here we are. We're on permanent holidays. That doesn't work for anybody. In fact, Socrates once said that we are teleological beings. And the only way that we become happy is as we're making progress, right? 
We never are happy if we're standing still as people. Even if we've met our goals, we still want to do something more. We still want to feel as though we're, we're, we're progressing. And so, yeah. you know, my thoughts on this whole thing is that it really is a matter of, how, how should we say, learning the laws, as you and I have talked about already, these 10,000 or more laws, but it's also understanding that there are some laws, and, and I would say that there are different degrees, there are laws and there are also precepts. Mm -hmm. Let me maybe explain the difference. A law is something like gravity. I don't care what you believe about it, you jump out the window, the law takes effect, right? And maybe that's the same with flat earthers. I mean, if you want to argue that with me, I will. I was actually in London, at Leicester Square, uh, not too long ago. I, I'm in London, England all the time. And there's these guys there that had this booth and they were talking about uh, flat earth. Now, I personally don't believe in flat earth, but I asked this guy a question. I said, have we been to the moon? Do you believe we've been to the moon? He goes, yes. I go, do you believe that we have um, been to the North Pole? And he goes, yes. I go, do you believe that we have, and I just listed all these scientific things. Do you believe that we took a submarine down to see the Titanic? Yes. Do we, and all these things. I said, so why haven't you flat earthers gotten together and organized an expedition to show us where the edge of the earth is? Like, really? I mean, we've done everything else. Yeah. So, you know, why haven't you guys done that? If you're so convinced that that's the truth, pull your money together, crowdfund it if you need to. And he was telling me about all these famous wealthy people who believe in flat earth. Well, then they should foot the bill. Go show me, have an expedition. And when you get there, show me, right? And well, he just goes, oh. well, anyways, okay. So that's a whole other story. But back to this idea of earth or of laws, so we've got laws that there's just laws. That's the way that they are. We can't yeah. do anything to dispute them. They will always be the way they are. Let's call them eternal, if you will. They're forever. They have no sure. beginning and no end. But precepts are something different. And precepts are something that, again, we can choose to obey, and we can obey it in degrees. So in other words, if we're taught a principle, like let's just say um, to be love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, what does that really mean? There's no right or wrong way to love someone. And in fact, your interpretation of loving someone may be actually to deny them something, right? Or to, like we said earlier with a critic, to maybe tell them, hey, you need to change. But your motive is love, right? So mm -hmm. a precept is something that cannot be defined by law, but there are still effects that come, right? It's like a ripple in a pond. There's still effects that will appear. And the more effective we become at implementing a precept, the more power there is. So we really have to learn to abide by the laws, which are indisputable, but we also need to bring in the precepts which define our character and our, how should we say, maybe our functioning within law, right? So there's law and then there's the individual in the law, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think that's the way that I would look at it. And then just back to bring the whole thought full circle is that the more that we understand how to operate within precepts and laws, the more salvation we attain for ourselves, if we want to use that word, the less we're condemned, the less we're stopped, the less we're held back. Right? You froze. Oh, I froze? Cool. Why? Am I back? You're back. I'm back. Nice. Cool. So the more we focus on the precepts and the laws, please continue that. Yeah, I was saying the, the more that we uh, have a greater understanding and mastery of the laws and the precepts, the less we are condemned, the more uh, ability, the more expansion, the more salvation, if you will, that we have. One of the principles I learned not long, well, some time ago, actually, um, especially when situations appear to be contracting, okay? Mm. We had that happen in 2008, 2009. We had an economic contraction. 
we have one going on now, globally. It's a contraction, as, the, as that's what they're saying. Um, and I find it fascinating how they can actually predict how many businesses aren't coming back. And I'm going, well, why wouldn't they come back? All we did was stop. We, we, we didn't say stop and you don't get to come back and you don't get to come back and you don't get to come back. But one of the principles that uh, was shared with me was when things are contracting, the last thing you want to do is contract. Yeah. You want to expand. Don't stop doing the things that you're doing. You may have to find new ways of doing them. Well, I, I think that you're right. And I think that people who uh, give up in times of con contraction are actually taking the lazy way out. The one thing that I've learned about money or anything like that is that resources always follow resourcefulness. That's the truth. I like I, that. I, I, I kind of love what Warren Buffett once said. He said, when the tide goes out, you can see who's swimming naked. And <laughs> it's, it's not just about money here though, right? When the tide goes out, we get to see how everybody looks. The people mm -hmm. who really have the stamina and the strength to stick around. The people who really are prepared for the future. The people who, like, you remember when they're having the shortage of toilet paper. As the tide goes out, you can even see who's prepared there, who bought enough, right? Like, everything becomes revealed when times are tough, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important that we recognize that when times are tough, what do they say that, you know, when, uh, when things get tough, the tough get going tough or whatever. Uh-huh, that's it. And, and that's fine. But the thing is, I think many people pay that lip service, but they really don't understand that you got to put the pedal to the metal. And that means some changes. And I think you and I were talking earlier that since this pandemic, I think you and I were saying we've both been busier than we've ever been before. Like ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? And so we've, we just got to recognize that, you know, as, as how, to, how they say, when the wind blows, don't let it knock you down. Go with the flow. Like Bruce Lee, be like water, right? Be like water. We've got to roll with it in that way. Well, you know, uh, one of my favorite quotes, I've quoted this a number of times over the last few months, and that is uh, uh, a lyric from a song um, is, uh, um, changes somehow frighten me. Still, I have to smile. It turns me on to think of growing old. Now, I'm 60. As of June 26th, I, I've turned 60 years of age. June 26th, you got the same birthday as my granddaughter. Ah. I'm, on the tw I'm on the 22nd, by the way, and my daughter's ah. on the 28th. So you guys are between. You're in the middle. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I'm glad to share something there in that regard. And so here I am, 60 years of existence. Still, yeah. less than a puff of smoke in the eternity of the universe, if you will. Um, and... It is extraordinary to look back. Every so often I find myself um, reminiscing, so to speak, self-reminiscing. I'm not in a group of people or even with my wife. I'm just sitting there kind of remembering, oh, yeah, I remember when that and this and that. And thinking, oh, my gosh, that seems like it was just yesterday. It seems just yesterday I was sitting in the control room at SunSounds Radio Reading Service for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And Tim Children mooned me from, the, from Studio A. Uh, or uh, it was just yesterday that, I, and, and, you know, whatever the events are. When in fact, as you made the reference earlier in the program about the past and the future and the present, it's like we, we, we have placed the linear timeline. When in reality, everything is kind of functioning all at the same time. And I suppose that at least the best we can do right now, as we understand the laws, 
is the only way we can visit the past is through our memories. Yeah. You know, we can't physically go back there. And I find this fascinating, uh, Douglas, how a lot of people, when you ask them if they have any regrets and they may say, yeah, uh, not to quote uh, Frankie, but uh, yeah, I have a few. Um, but the reality is that when you have a regret, what you're saying, in my, in my opinion, is I want to pull that thread out of the tapestry. Mm. Okay, yeah. I don't want that in there. The problem with doing that is that that thread is still tied to other threads of things that you would like. And so now what you've done is you, you have unraveled the tapestry. Yeah. You are no longer in the present moment. You are no longer the person you were because you pulled that thread out. Well, of course, physically, you know, literally we cannot do that. But, yeah. it, it, but that's what regret is. It's saying, if only I could go back and change that. But if you went back and changed it, you don't have a clue as to who you would be today. Absolutely. You know? And I think that, that this is kind of where I was talking earlier about the whole aspect of duality, right, wrong, good, bad, etc. cetera. Mm. Uh, and that is that um, the, 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 the premise here is that things just are. Yes, when you are. see the universe flying around, Mm -hmm. and things colliding and supernovas exploding and so forth, we ooh and awe, and it's just miraculous. And we're just, it's incredible. But when things are colliding and exploding here, it's fear or joy one way or the other. That's when in true. reality, why is it different here than it is out there? It isn't. Things just are the way they are, aren't they? they? Are. Isn't it? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that that's, you know, it's an interesting observation. I think one of the things that you said um, that I think is really kind of important to notice about this too, is that a lot of times when people are um, talking about memories and visiting the past, they say, you know, I can't get to my past, right? Well, the truth is, is your past really doesn't exist anyways, right? Like it just isn't something that's real because the way that you remember it is not correct. You'll never remember it the way that it really was. So it's gone. It's, there's no, it doesn't exist, right? Your memory will never ever create it the way that it is. So you can't revisit the past, right? Right, right. You're absolutely right. It's, it's really very, very, uh, it's, it's interesting to, again, contemplate these concepts because it, it sort of opens up a little different world for us um, yeah. in terms of understanding our part in the universe. Now, I've, I've used the phrase that, uh, as I said before, you know, my existence is less than a puff of smoke <laughs> in the universe. Uh, yeah. But that doesn't, that does not mean that my life doesn't have meaning. I don't know where the concept comes from. Okay. All I know is that my life has meaning. Yeah. Um, because at the end of this interview, I'm not going to go out and rape and pillage and plunder because my life doesn't have meaning. I'm hoping, hoping to be able to schedule more interviews and do more conversations like this to elicit thought on the part of others to consider the possibility that as good as life is today, set aside all of the perceived chaos and, and, and what have you that's going on out there. This is an incredible place, this planet. And this life that we live. This is awesome. Yeah. Some of us live in, in more awesome places than other. And that's, that's subjective. 
but that doesn't mean that we can't make it better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when, when I get in conversations with people and I hear about, you know, they want to talk about, oh, yeah, we're just going way over the, over the hill as far as climate change. I, said, I don't want to talk climate change. Yeah. I want to talk. Can we just clean up our home, please? <laughs> Can we just clean up our home? And look what's happened in the first two months of lockdown across the planet. Uh, in, in Italy, in yeah. Venice. The canals cleared, the whales and dolphins came back after how many years? 500 years? They're back in the canals. It's pretty uh, crazy. Skies are cleaner. And, and, and again, it's almost where we've got to now declare a state of one month every year. Everybody stays inside and off the roads. Everybody, yeah. one month every year. That'd be kind of interesting, right? It, it, it would be. And, and the thing is, is if you know it's coming, yeah, you can okay. prepare for it. And you prepare for it. It's not a big deal. My wife and I, we have this small little, it's a two-shelf cupboard under the counter that we've called our pantry. And we will buy a couple of extra cans of this mm -hmm. and that and the other thing. And, and that's where we put the stuff. And, you know, even dur during the months, we'll pull stuff out of there. I don't think I'm going to have that tonight. Not that we, you know, it's not going to hurt the supply. We'll yeah. put more stuff in there later. Uh, as far as uh, this whole toilet paper thing, we... We had to laugh at the scarcity. We had to laugh because we knew that there was more than one way <clears throat> to skin a cat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, we even looked into buying alternative devices like a bidet, you know? Oh, cool. So, I mean, that's just, it's just one example. And, and yeah, I have- you make, you make solutions. Different. Again, it's that resourcefulness we're talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. I have had uh, a, a philosophy that I have lived by and it has served me well. And it, that is, and I learned this, especially in 94, 95, when I first started working with computers, hmm. there is always a workaround. Fair it's enough. It's just how willing are you to look for it? Yeah. Yeah. And another yeah. one of my philosophies, philosophies is to work with what you have until you get what you want. Well, I also feel uh, it's funny because uh, when I was interviewing the top achievers, I started listening very carefully to what people would say. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people, um, you know, you, you'd hear excuses, but the thing that I found in common, and by the way, this is funny. I started actually writing down all the excuses I would ever hear. So I've got a master list of all the excuses I've ever heard from people. I know that sounds crazy, but it, it was a fun little exercise. But the thing that I found is that people will never make an excuse over something unless they have power over it. In other words, if you could do nothing about it, if there's nothing you can do, you don't make an excuse. You just say, I can't do it. We either make an excuse because we're either lazy or we are trying to people please, or we're trying to, you know, we get out of doing something. It seems hard. And generally our first instinct is to make that excuse. Hey, can you come over tonight? No, I got this going on. The truth is you could come over tonight, right? You could do that. But rather than hurt someone's feelings or rather than do the work or restructure our life or whatever it is, we make an excuse. And I think there's more power in simply saying yes or no, right? And being honest about it. So yes, I will come over great or no, I won't. I've got other things that I would prefer to be doing tonight, right? Yeah. And I, I, I think that that's a really big challenge for a lot of people. Let me ask you, mm -hmm. in reference to the film, how thoughts become things I keep wanting to say thoughts become feelings that's another film for another day but you How know what it, it, it's true that actually our feelings are part of that equation 
right? We talked about emotion already at the beginning of the interview, right? Yeah. And feelings, it is a good substitute word because tell you the truth, thoughts don't really become things, but your feelings do. Your feelings have more power than your thoughts, right? Yeah. Emotion. Yes. Emotion. Emotion. In fact, you know, it's interesting. William James, the American philosopher uh, or psychologist, he also said that it's emotion that puts us into motion. And I think that's really an interesting observation as well. I love that. That absolutely, absolutely. Talk to us in relation to the film about this is this is what I have observed over the last three, three and a half years in this country, especially on a national level, um, about victimhood. I thought we yeah. were through it in the eighties. I went through personal growth programs in the eighties and nineties, and we went into the Taking, starting to take responsibility and interdependence yeah. on one another and so forth. And then we hit 2016 campaign and it's like, it's everybody else's <laughs> fault that we are the way that we are. We don't have any responsibility whatsoever. And that's how we're going to fix things. We're going to get them. We're going to fix them. We're going to put up a wall. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Talk to me about how victimhood actually interferes with our ability to make thoughts into things as we have discussed here on this program thus far. Oh yeah. Well, victimhood is, is essentially giving away your power. That's all it really is. Right. We give up who we really are for, you know, whatever the reasons could be fear, doubt, uh, jealousy, comparison, you know, you fill in the blank, but here's an interesting thought too, is that, you know, most time when people are talking about thoughts, they generally either talk about negative thinking or positive thinking. And they don't recognize that there's actually four kinds of thinking, right? There's four kinds. And um, you know what's funny is I actually do have a flip chart or a dry weight race behind me. So why don't we even do it like this? All right, sure. Uh, do a little bit of teaching. If you think about it, it's kind of almost like, uh, think of the principle of buoyancy with water. If something is negatively buoyant, it sinks. If something's positive mm-hmm. buoyant, it's top, right? So let's just draw the ocean here. I am not the greatest artist. If you get the idea. That's all right. Here's negative thinking at the bottom, okay? So no, right. we know with negative thinking, when something sinks to the bottom, it really has no, nowhere further it can go down. And the further negative we think, we've got discouragement, we've got fear, we've got all these things that are not empowering, things that are going to be, you know, challenging for us, right? That's right. the lowest. And, and a negative thought left long enough actually can lead to all kinds of things like depression and heaven forbid, even suicide. Now, above that, there's a kind of thinking that no one ever talks about. It's called neutral thinking, but it's kind of the autopilot stuff that we have in our life. And just like neutral buoyancy, it's neither at the bottom and it's neither at the top. It's just kind of sitting there midway, right? But the problem with anything that's neutral is it eventually becomes negative. If you think about people who sit watching TV uh, and they, you know, then they go to bed and they wake up, they do the same thing again tomorrow, rinse, repeat, watch TV, go to work, blah, blah, blah. Eventually they feel kind of discouraged about their life and it leads to negativity, right? If we keep doing neutral, it leads to negativity. Now, the next one up is what we call positive. Now, the interesting thing about positive, there's the water, is that positive and positive buoyancy is actually floating at the top, right? Something that's positively buoyant floats. But one of the things about positive thinking is it's really been misunderstood in pop culture. A lot of people read Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking, all this stuff, and they think that, they, that that's what he's talking about, but that's actually not what he's talking about at all. Um, most people, if you look at those that are quote unquote positive thinkers, they are looking for a negative situation that they can paint positive. 
What I mean by that is they say, uh, darn, I missed the bus, but let's look on the bright side, right? Or my spouse left me. Let's look on the bright side, right? And we've even got, maybe we've even got family members that do this. I know I do. That look for drama to be able to find value in finding a positive. And if they can't find drama, they create it, right? Uh-huh. So, so even these people at positive thinking are perpetual victims. They're looking for a state uh, in which they can be a victim so that they can find value in escaping by the skin of their teeth or where they can find value in, in showing everybody that they can, they made it through without a big deal. Right mm-hmm. now, the kind of thinking that is above these three that we really want to practice is what we call proactive thinking. Mm. Right. It is above the water. You'll notice very interestingly, it's not uh, controlled by what's around it, meaning the water and it's not influenced by it. If you think about a person who's positive, it's very hard to just jump out of the water, right? If you've ever tried that in the pool, you can't do it. You have to be out to be able to jump your highest, right? And so the only time that we are truly not a victim is when we're proactive and we decide ahead of time what we want. We set boundaries around what we want. We don't let someone else's emergency become our fire, so to speak. We, we've decided where we will get involved, what we will do to help, what we'll say no to, and so forth. But up until then, we can't help but be responsive. We will be victims. So hopefully this is helpful. I, did, I found that, that when I learned that, that was really kind of a powerful thing to, to think about. And ladies and gentlemen, did you really think that we were going to let you leave without getting a little workshop in? I mean, I'll tell you, that's a, that's a first for tell me your story that we've actually had a, a small Oh, I'm little sure workshop. you've had this before. I'm sure you've oh, had that before. It's, it's, we're not the that's first. Great. That's great. That's great. I, uh, I have to say that, that one of the, the observations that I have made over the last few, uh, last few years, uh, and I've had to work through uh, my own, I had to work on myself through this process, where, um, and I've shared this experience uh, with our listeners because I think it's important. Uh, I had to, I had to uh, and it took me a while to say this out loud, hmm. uh, to say, thank you, teacher, for teaching me how I don't want to behave. I remember uh, at Easter one time, I was sharing with my mother of my frustrations. And I said, would you allow me to speak the way he speaks to the American people? Uh, she says, no, you would, I would be slapping you silly uh, if you spoke to me that way. And I thought, okay. Uh, but then I moved to the next phase. The next phase was, I forgive you, but I've more importantly forgive myself for, being allow- for allowing myself to be dragged into this quagmire hmm. of chaos and, and, and negativity and, and, you know, all of this stuff that really doesn't serve me. I've moved to a third phase and it goes to what you were just talking about. And that is, I take my ego out of the way. I look at the human being who has every right to be here as I do. And I ask one simple question. Why are you so, what is it that has made you so afraid that you have to behave and speak and act the way that you do? Mm. Now, please understand, I'm not asking you to change. I want to understand so I can move on with my life. Now, in my opinion, that is a place that we need to come to with anybody that we feel we need to disassociate with in our lives who whether they be abusive or otherwise uh who uh we cannot uh, well we can still learn from 
that we don't really want to be around because they, they really aren't, they aren't, if they're not being neutral, they're not being supportive. Mm. Okay. You follow what I'm saying? And that's not to say that you surround yourself with yes people. Don't get me wrong, but at least people who are uh, supportive from the standpoint, Hey, that's really neat. You know, it's not my vision. I know it's yours and I see you're really jazzed about it. And that's, that's really cool. Okay. And they go about their business. And uh, you know, to me, that's, that's fine. Um, what are your thoughts in, in regards to uh, a, maybe working on, as we work on ourselves, because that's really the only place that we can work. I mean, your, your film talks about that quite often. And that's yeah. what we've been talking about, about going within and, and, and getting in touch with those things. And it can be a scary, yeah. it can be a scary place because many, many of us haven't been there or haven't been there in a long, long time. It's true. It's true. And, you know, I, I think that that's the whole thing about this. Again, back to this word become, right? It's a matter of courage. It really is a matter of courage, too. And I think, quite frankly, two things about this. One, I think there's a lot of people who, first of all, have not taken the time to really investigate what they want and what's serving them and what will provide value, what will make them happy. And by the way, here's something interesting about happiness to think about. A lot of people say happiness is a choice. Well, you know, recently I was speaking at a maximum security prison in, in North Carolina, and there were a lot of guys in there that had made choices that at the time they thought was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. They're not happy right now. I can tell you they're not happy. And you can almost guarantee that anytime your choices are based on immediate gratification, they're not going to give you lasting happiness, mm -hmm. right? So happiness is not a choice, right? It's not a choice. Happiness, what it is, is making a choice but also being pleased with the consequences that show up, right? So it's choice plus consequence. That's what happiness is, right? And so if we really look at what how thoughts become things is all about, it's about changing this idea of become and the how of understanding how to make choices that are gonna put you in the highest position of harmony with who you really wanna be. Maybe let me put it another way to put you in a position to make more choices. You see, because if you look at these guys in prison, they made choices that took away their freedoms, right? They made choices that put them in a small cell that they have to share with somebody else. They got one toilet in there that they have to share with somebody else. They only can eat when the meals arrive. They can only do what they're allowed to do and even go outside for exercise when other people dictate those uh, opportunities to them. So there are choices that contract again, this idea of contracting, right? So what is happiness? It's again, making a good choice that puts us in a better position to have more choices available so that we can expand, we can reach our potential, we can become who we want. And then again, as those consequences arrive, we feel really good about them. I'm not saying we're going to get it perfect all the time because we can't, right? We're not mm -hmm. perfect in that regards. And, you know, top achievers aren't perfectionists anyways, they're improvisers. And that's what we learn to do. But if we can, select choices that are going to allow us the ability to choose again, we're doing pretty good. Well, and then I throw a fly into the ointment by saying that uh, we do have, among these inalienable rights, we do have life, we do have liberty, and we have the, we have the pursuit of happiness. And I used to, to joke about that saying, that's great. The founding fathers we said you can pursue it, but you can never have it. They, they don't say life, liberty, and happiness. 
They say life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, this also brings up another interesting point. And you know that happiness is not a destination. Happiness is the pursuit. Uh-huh. Yeah, right? absolutely. And most people don't ever acknowledge that. They figure that it will, I'll be happy when I get there. Yeah. No, 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 no. If you're not happy now, you won't be happy then either. Yeah. Right? So we well, understand you- that it, 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 it is a decision and it is really, again, being in a position to make more choices. It really is. Well, I'll tell you, uh, choices and knowledge of the choices to help make dreams come true is what we're all about here. And the only way that you are going to know about the other choices is to consider other possibilities, to see yeah. opportunity and to think outside the box or outside the nine dots or whatever other analogy that you want to use. And uh, we just encourage folks to do just that. And we also encourage you to go to howthoughtsbecomethings.com, watch the film, get more information, find out more about Douglas Vermeeren. Uh, Douglas, I want to thank you, Douglas Vermeeren, for joining us on the program and for sharing all of these wonderful ideas and concepts and, and just having this conversation about this aspect of our lives that many of us don't contemplate. Uh, and that's why I'm hoping that people will hear this on all levels and realize that, for example, when they say that, oh, 80% of all businesses will not come back after the uh, lockdown is lifted, that does not have to be the truth. That does not have to be the truth. And it's entirely yeah. up to the owners of these different businesses to find other ways. And I still remember after the downturn of 2008, 2009, that the entrepreneurial boom blast it and more small businesses were created after that than at any other time. And I also think too, uh, Douglas, about the immigrants who came to this country through Ellis Island with that phrase on their tips, on the tip of their tongue, Mm-hmm. that this was the land of opportunity. And some of those people went on to create multi-billion dollar corporations. That's how they grew. Now that may not be your dream and that's fine. You don't have to become a multi-million dollar or billion dollar corp. But the reality is that if you were born and raised here, it's still as much of the land of opportunity for you as it is for those people who came across in late 1800s and early 1900s. I want to thank you again for joining us. And uh, when we are allowed to start moving around again, you know, if you come out here to Santa Barbara, we'd love to have you in studio to continue this conversation and talk about some of the other films that you've done as well. Yeah. Well, there's three more. We could spend a couple hours there too. (laughs) You know what? Let's do that. Just to kind of let people know what they are. In fact, right now, if you go to How Thoughts Become Things, all four films are available there as well. So you can find all four. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. I do have three final questions for you, but before I let you uh, answer those questions, I want to remind our listeners of the podcasts that are available. The broadcast is on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and Monday mornings at 1 a.m. That is Pacific time. And we do stream live at our website, richarddugan.com during those times. And the podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, lots of other places. And if you'd like to join us and support us financially, PayPal and Patreon accounts are available for you. And we thank those of you who have supported us. And I have to tell you, folks, uh, I am extremely gratified when I go to the statistics page on SoundCloud and I see 18,000 listens plus 
in just a little over two and a half years. It blows my mind that that's how many listens we've had. It's not the number of people necessarily, but it's how many times people have listened to these at different interviews. And that, that speaks volumes to me. Very and it cool. says that, okay, we're doing the right thing and people do care and they are listening. All right. So the first of my three questions that I love to ask my guests, you may have answered them in some fashion as we've gone through the interview, but I will ask them directly. And the first is, who is Douglas Vermeeren? Wow. Wow. That's a good question. Uh, I would say um, he's not him yet. That's what I'd say. You know, um, we're all in this process of self-discovery and figuring it out. Right. I was actually talking with someone the other day and they said, generally between the ages of one to 50, we're figuring out who we are from 50 to the day we die. We're living as that person. And so I think uh, I'm still in the process of discovery. I still got a lot of things I want to learn about me and things that I want to do, places that I want to go. And, you know, one experience that comes to mind is as a young man, you know, I was raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And I felt that that was the center of the universe. And then I got to travel. And then I discovered that, mm -mm, right? So there's still so much more that honestly, I believe will unfold to me who I am and who I'm not. So that's yet to come. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Well, I think, uh, you know, there's a couple ways to, to look at this. One, I find validation and fulfillment by connecting with those that are passionate about the same things I am. And so as I share my mission, the things that I enjoy and the learning, like the truth is, is I may be a teacher in this film, but first and foremost, I consider myself a student. And I enjoy, like, again, remember, I hated school. We talked about that. But mm -hmm. I do love learning. And yeah. I love learning the things that I feel are relevant and expanding. And so, uh, for me, one of, one of my biggest excitements is to find other people who feel the same way that I do. And um, we have great conversations. Like, you and I have had a fun time tonight. This is cool, right? And it's, it, it, it's kind of neat when you can you can – chat with somebody and you both feel like this has been good, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of why I do what I do. Final question. What is your life's purpose? Wow. Well, I think that's, that's a pretty, pretty big question because I don't know that there's just one. I think there's a few purposes of why we've got, you know, I, I look at, some of my roles, which I have that to some extent have become part of my identity. I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, I'm a husband, I'm a brother, I'm a son, uh, I'm a teacher. I'm like, there's many, I guess, roles that I take on. So each one of those areas I think has a unique purpose or a unique mission, if you will. What do we say that a goal that is specific and clear becomes attainable and near. And so we look to find purpose in everything that we do. And in some cases, some of those purposes overlap. Sometimes they don't, but that's okay. Um, I think the key is, is just, um, you know, to find that purpose. And then as you find yourself on or off track, that you're loyal to that. Kind of reminds me of what Stephen Covey said. He said, some people climb the ladder of success to find it's only leaning against the wrong wall. So <laughs> the truth is, is we've always got to be analyzing where's, where's the ladder that we're climbing taking us. And if we need to make an adjustment, we do that. That's pretty funny, but it's true, right? It's true. It 
right? It Sometimes is. people arrive at a destination and say, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> so, That's right? right. That's it's right. True. Absolutely. Just, just being honest about it. So don't be afraid to analyze where you're really going. And uh, if you need to make adjustments, that's cool. And you know what? The other thing you were talking about earlier in the interview, you said, what about when we look back and we see regrets? Well, we've got to be gentle with ourselves because the truth of the matter is, is those moments in the past, you were making the best decision that you knew how to at the time with the information that you were given and the values that you had at the time. So be gentle on, on yourself, who you were. And yeah. the truth is, is I'm saying this also because I know whatever I believe today is wrong. It's wrong. <laughs> and, and the me that will be here when I'm in my 70s and 80s and I look back to me in my 40s, I'm going to go, what were you thinking? Right? Or yeah. were you thinking? Oh, but you think? the, the truth is, is I'm doing the best that I know how right now. And I'm sure almost everyone else is too. So we need to be very gentle with each other and be grateful for the lessons that we're learning. That's really the purpose. If you think about it, it just become better tomorrow than you are today. And if you do that, you're doing all right. Sounds good. Douglas, thank you again for joining us here on the program and, and sharing yourself with us and our listeners. And we again, encourage people to go to your website for this film, how thoughts become things.com. And I thank you for listening to tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Until our next broadcast podcast, love to love.